some ways, baptism is like the construction of a ship in dry dock where it's built there over time and readied for the sea, and then it's christened with a champagne bottle or something across the hull of it and then sent on its way to future voyages. In some ways, that's what a baptism is. And uh, so this morning, as part of our prayer time, before we begin the message, I want to pray for Jerry and Katie and Evie. Lift them up as we begin our time together. Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, before we climb into the Word ourselves and consider the message that you have for this people this morning, I want to lift up another uh, pastor and his wife, Rick and Julie Prettyman. Lord, I'm thankful for their friendship. I'm thankful for the shared worship. I'm thankful that we share a, a risen Lord and a Holy Spirit and an empty tomb and that we share a calling. Thankful for a shared ministry in this community to Aldersgate, Lord, I I pray for this church. I pray for just a fervent, salty, bright, aromatic journey. I pray for those that are gathering at Aldersgate this morning and gather each week that they will be built up and equipped to enjoy you out loud in our community, in the workplace, wherever you might take them. Lord, I pray that we will have a true relationship with them, a a spirit of um, hope and joy and attentiveness and Um, eagerness for each other's ministry, that you can be great in and through the ministry of Aldersgate. Lord, I just pray for Rick and Julie. I just pray that you would guard their hearts as they serve your people, that, that you would guard them and keep them in Christ Jesus, that you would guard his heart from this becoming a J-O-B, but that it would continue to be a calling every week that you would just renew him, refit him, re-equip him to equip week after week after week. And that first of all, that finds purchase at home. I pray that his family doesn't get the leftovers. I pray that they get first fruits. I pray that his wife gets first of all. Lord, as they are overseas right now in the process of adopting, I'm thankful for the gospel being put on display through the work of adoption. Thankful that they are able and called to participate in this at this point. And I pray that you will be made much of through that. Lord, speaking of adoption, we are thankful for your calling into the faith, calling us into your family as adopted sons and daughters through the finished work of your son. I'm thankful this morning that we had the chance to witness and participate in and enjoy the christening of three ministries. Lord, we pray for Jerry. Just pray that you will continue to use him as the, the massive encouragement that he is in so many people's lives. Pray that you would just guide him and direct him and grow him in you. Give him deep roots that brave the years so that till his last breath, he enjoys you out loud. Lord, we pray for Katie and Evie, thankful for new faith and thankful that you've been in work in their hearts for years, even before these last few months where they've come to faith in you. Thankful that it's all been part of your work and all been part of your story. Thankful that you have opened the eyes of little wee hearts that you have shown two girls what you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray for their journeys as worshipers, as young ladies, that you would guard them and keep them close to you, keep their ways pure and walking in worthy or walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And Lord, use them for your glory, whatever you have in store for them. 
as wives or mothers or both or some other role, just pray that you would use them for your glory. And most of all, whatever role they serve in, that they would be worshipers. Lord, lastly, this morning, I want to lift up another pastor and his wife on the far corners that aren't so far, just down the road in commerce. We're thankful for Commerce Community Church and thankful for the awesome privilege that we had of planting a church. Lord, as we pray for Commerce Community Church and we pray for David and Whitney, Lord, we pray that you would raise up other church plants and planters, should it be your will, that we would have the privilege and opportunity to participate in those yet again. Lord, we pray that if we are at the point where we are pregnant and ready to plant, that you would give us the guts to step out in that, as challenging and as frightening as that may be, that we will plant if you call us to. As we look at what you have done and are doing through Commerce Community Church, we are so encouraged. We're so thankful and privileged to have been and continue to be part of it. Lord, I pray you will use these next few minutes for your own glory. I pray that you will give me a clarity of speech and mind that I know I don't have, that you will use the folly of a frail, feeble preacher to speak to hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter three. We have been in Hebrews chapter three the last few weeks, and this is our last installment in chapter three of Hebrews. For those of you that are visiting, we move slowly through books of the Bible. Uh, there are occasions where we may have a series of sermons that are sort of topical, but for the most part, what we want to do as we come together and worship each week is we want to sort of set even our questions aside, even our problems aside, and just sit at his feet and let him speak through a next passage of Scripture and trust that he's showing us exactly what we need in his time, and he's done that over and over again. So we trust this method of working through the Bible slowly. We spent eight years in John. We've been in Hebrews for about a year and a few months. So uh, we're finishing up chapter three. And as you can expect and trust, this Bible is living and it ever speaks. And that's how you can move so slowly and yet it continues to speak week after week after week. This morning, I'm going to read from chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. This first verses 7 through 11 come from Psalm 95, which is a psalm that's written about the wilderness experience. It was written at a time about six to 700 years after the wilderness experience. And it's written to the nation of Israel after they've been in exile in Babylon to remind them of remember what your fathers did. Your fathers didn't trust me. It's pointing back, this passage is where they put God to the test. It's pointing back to a passage or an occasion in the book of Exodus where they didn't trust God. They didn't trust him for water. They didn't trust him provision. They didn't trust in him for deliverance when they went into the promised land and they were scared of the giants. 
You may remember those passages, those sermons the last couple of weeks. They were scared of things that are all quite small compared to the living God. And they trusted or feared man more than they feared God. And the consequence was they lost out on their, on their physical inheritance. Let me qualify it. Their physical inheritance was the promised land, and those that didn't trust God ended up dying in the wilderness. A million sandy graves was proof that there are grave consequences for not trusting God. This Hebrews pastor is taking his church, who in many ways is on the bubble and considering falling back to Judaism. They're in a context likely in Rome that has, faces heavy persecution. If they follow Christ, not only are their friends going to make fun of them, but they could lose their jobs. They could lose their lives. Likely their families, if they didn't follow Christ as well, would completely disown them and bail on them. So the Hebrews preacher is taking this church, likely in Rome in the first century, taking them back to what their forefathers were guilty of 1,500 years earlier and saying, don't you do what they did or you'll lose out on your inheritance. But this time he's not talking about a physical inheritance. He's not talking about the promised land. He's talking about something far more grave. Listen to what he says next. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every single day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This passage has had so much to say over these last few weeks. These people are in danger of losing their eternal inheritance. Though they had followed Christ and had become a church, should they go to Judaism, they would lose out on their eternal inheritance through unbelief. This passage, verse 14, is a key passage to help you understand what's being said here. We share in Christ. We are partners with Christ. If indeed we hold our confidence, original confidence, firm to the end, we are covenant partners with Christ. If indeed we go the distance. If we stop short of the finish line, you heard me pray for Jerry Mars to the last breath. Same for Evie. Same for Katie, the same for every last one of us. To our last breath, those who are covenant partners with Christ, go the distance and don't bail on him. He is appealing to the Hebrews church, don't bail on Christ. There's, in our context, there's a language of salvation. And the language of salvation that's usually used goes something like this. I got saved on this day. I got saved when I was six years old. It's a very common language, a very common saying, I got saved at this point in time. 
You need to realize these guys in the New Testament context would not have used that language. Rather than saying, I got saved, they would have used the language that's more in keeping with what our Bibles say about salvation. We are being saved. It makes a massive difference how you view salvation. If you view it as some transaction that took place at some point in time, then who knows what's going to happen after that? And really, who cares? Because you've secured it. If you view it as a transformed life that goes the distance till death do us part, then you're more in line with what our New Testament writers are talking about when they talk about salvation. Till death do us part. I thought I would share a little sideline passage. It's tangent, but not quite. It's an important passage in the book of Romans. Just listen. Don't turn there because I've got other places I need you to save your energy for this morning. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that was the only verse there in Romans, then we could use the language, I got saved. Sounded like a true Southerner. I got saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, both of those words in the original Greek, confess and believe, are what's called punctiliar. They're aorist tense. It means it happens at a point in time. Bam! If that's all that there was, then we could say, all right, I got saved. But the next verse says this, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. If he's just trying to show here what the heart is doing and what the mouth is doing, then he could have said, with the heart, one believed. And with the mouth, one confessed. If it was aorist tense, punctiliar, at a point in time, bam, I got saved, then those would be past tense. But they are present tense. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Here, present tense, believes. We are Being saved is a much more robust way of viewing the work of salvation. And the Hebrews preacher is saying, dudes, dudettes, you bail on Jesus, you're missing out on your eternal inheritance. You bail on Jesus, you are not being saved anymore. You have stepped out from under the covenant. You've stepped out from under the saving work. Now, This last, there's a word for this thing that we've been considering here in Hebrews chapter three. The word is apostasy. It may be a new word for some of you who are visiting. If you've been here the last few weeks, it's a word you've heard. It may not be a word that you've heard in the church very much. It's not a real fashionable sermon. It's not a great church growth sermon. I'll tell you that. People don't like the the conversation at all. I realized last week, I went home just sort of feeling down and I realized last week, The reason I felt down, the passage that we ended with last week at the Lord's Supper, where Jesus is identifying the one who would betray him, it says there that the disciples are saying, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And it also says that they were very sad, just at the notion. But you know who else was sad? The John account says that Jesus was sad. It's not a cheery topic for anybody. 
But if all we ever engage is cheery topics, then we miss out on a lot of truth. If all we ever do is things that make us feel better about ourselves, then we miss out on a lot of things that are just necessary. And that's the nature of apostasy sort of messages. This, I'm going to just add on top of this morning as if we're going to take something that's already uncomfortable, and we're going to talk about election as well. Election and apostasy. And the reason we have to talk about them together is because you have to figure out how they fit together. Something that's happened to us as a church, and I don't know when it was. We were in John chapter 6, so it's been years ago at this point. In John chapter 6, the sort of the character of this church's view on salvation changed. A new sniglet that, it's not new, it's been around for a long time. It's a great word. Dramatically, it's not a word, but it's just they ought to be one. The character of this church changed dramatically when we went through John chapter 6. It's where we're going to end this morning. I'm going to show you why it, Kate, you're shaking your hand, but you know it's good. Dramatic changes took place in this church in John chapter 6. We're going to land there this morning at the end, but where I want to take us first is election in 10 minutes. Election in 10 minutes. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. This will be quite a feat if we can tackle election 101. Now, the reason we need to tackle election before we can kind of connect this to apostasy is because some of us have never had election built into you. You might be like me, grew up in a church or have spent some time in a church where there were certain passages where they used a technique that I've called the read real fast technique. Where you get to a passage, is just sort of problematic, so you just kind of start getting faster and faster, and you kind of just try and plow through it, and you hope that nobody asks any questions. Well, this Ephesians chapter 1, in a lot of ways, is one of those read real fast sort of passages, but it's one that we haven't read real fast. It's one that we've dined on and feasted on, and it's just a nice way to sort of lay out sort of the, the um, um, what are those things, peers for a foundation, okay, starting in chapter one verse three, election in 10 minutes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, that sounds really lofty. Okay, let's hear how this plays out, how he's blessed us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, he's, he's writing to a church. He's writing to believers. It could be as if he's writing to the Hebrews church. Now, I don't think Paul was the author of Hebrews. Paul identified himself. But it could be. It's another church. So he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, God's blessed us in heavenly places with spiritual blessings, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before we ever even took a breath, before we ever even thunk a thought, before we ever even said anything or did anything, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his own will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in which we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven, in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined 
according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, that we could spend months in that passage. I hope you know that. And I, we probably did. I don't remember. But look, let me just grab some of the, the freight out of that passage, some of the, the luggage. First of all, he's chosen us for the, before the foundation of the world. Unfashionable or not, we're just going to read it and let it speak. Okay, if you can set your presuppositions aside, I don't know what shaped it for me, what made this so hard for me. I, I'm wondering if it wasn't Aladdin. Aladdin, you know, his story about, I don't even know what, know what all the characters' names are, you know, but Aladdin and this little princess, you know, the princess is betrothed to someone else, but she falls in love with Aladdin, and true love couldn't possibly be arranged. Maybe that's a Western mindset, and maybe I just was conditioned by Aladdin. I don't know, but this thought of him foreknowing and predestining me, I thought true love wasn't arranged. Well, most of the world actually participates in arranged marriages. You need to know that lots of love happens that's not boy meets girl and boy shows off for girl and that's some nice dance moves and girl falls in love with boy and then there's true love. A large part of the world has arranged marriages and in fact, we've even had discussions in this church about thinking about that might be a pretty good idea. Christy and I are having negotiations with people if anybody wants to talk. <laughs> uh, Aladdin, I don't know what it was. Something's to blame for this being hard. He predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world, chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, the reason that's encouraging for me is because if I'm going to be chosen based on anything I've done, good or bad, I've done a whole lot more bad than good. So being chosen before the foundation of the world gives me hope. Like, oh, okay, well, that's good news. Predestined for adoption according to his own purpose. Verse 5. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He opened the eyes of our hearts. He is the mover behind the big verbs. He made known. He opened the eyes. And he predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You got to know that sovereignty, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you believe that nothing happens either by his, uh, except by his design or his permission. Nothing. The worst tragedy you can possibly imagine, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you've got to believe that only happens by permission. There's his perfect will and there's his permissive will. But God is sovereign over every bit of it. Every single bit. If there's a renegade, R.C. Sproul says, if there's a renegade molecule in the universe, then God is no longer God. So this picture here, he is in complete control and working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And when you heard and believed, this is the sweetest part of this whole notion of election. When you heard and believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed, like, man, that's, oh, that sounds permanent. 
That's what you should hear. That sounds really permanent. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to become unsealed. If God is going to seal you, you are sealed. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. That's the actual words there. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, the hard part, if you're reading both passages, the Hebrews preacher is warning the Hebrews church, you're going to lose out on your eternal inheritance. The irony, not a funny irony, like potentially confusing irony. If we're sealed, then we're sealed. If we're not, we're not. Now, we're going to deal with that, but let me just say this because I'm going to use this language later on in the morning. Those who are his, by what we're going to call eternal decree before the foundation of the world, are called in our Bibles the elect. Eklektos is the word in Greek. The cool thing about eklektos is where you get the word eclectic. Like somebody who's eclectic has stuff from all different genres which is that's beautiful what he's doing in the church. He's gathering from all different genres, all different colors, all different socioeconomic, all different places, climes, places, ages, people groups. He's gathering the eclectos. And the name for the church in our Bibles is ecclesia, the gathering of the elect. However unsavory those sort of words might be to you, let me just disarm every bit of it right now. I think the reason it seems so difficult for folks is because the word sounds like uber proud, like I'm the elect, look at me. But the reality is that's not it at all. Listen to this. This will just disarm any of that. If some of you are hearing that word maybe for the first time or you've been visiting Crosspoint, you're like, I didn't know they believed in the elect. Hmm. Listen to this. Here's what we believe about the elect. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Those who truly understand this and take in the full counsel of what the Bible says about the elect, electos in the ecclesia, understand that it's not a proud bunch. He's chosen the foolish things that confound the wise, if anything. He's chosen the least likely to succeed. Look at the disciples. Buffoons. I mean, tax collectors. Fishermen. Peter. Look at Peter. Peter does stuff half-cocked every single day. They're at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. An awesome moment, and Peter butts in. They're talking about Christ's exodus, and Peter butts in. Hey, Jesus, you want me to build y'all a tent? He takes the foolish things that confound the wise, not the fanciest. Look at the disciples. In our Bibles, cover to cover, he uses old men like Abraham. Old men, old barren women. Do you know how many story in how many stories in our Bible have to where God uses a barren woman for something? 
least likely to succeed, poor maidens, shepherd boys. I don't know if it's Aladdin or if it's just American or if we just want to be in the driver's seat. I don't know what it is that makes it so hard for us to accept this. It made me think of what, what I was given on a, like a little placard, schlacked placard when I graduated from high school, the poem Invictus. Anybody ever heard the poem Invictus? I'm the captain of my own soul. Yeah, hear me roar. I'm in charge. Maybe that's just that. Maybe it's been built into every single one of us after high school. <laughs> Did y'all get that poem? Maybe I'm the only one that got that poem. You're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Look it up, Invictus. It'll make you laugh. I mean, it'll probably make you roar because you're like, yeah, that sounds good. But then you look at it through the lens of the Bible and you go, oh, <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous. Invictus. I don't know what it is that makes it so hard for us to accept these sort of truths, but I actually take comfort in them. I have to admit to you, when we got to John chapter 6 and had to deal with some of these things, man, mm, paradigms don't fall easily and they don't fall comfortably. But man, when they're built and they're built on God's word, they're rebuilt, there's joy and peace in that like you thought you had. And you find it's much more peaceful, much more robust, much more calming for me to know that God is the saver through and through, that he's the mover behind the verbs. Because if there's any verbs that are dependent on me, I might make it, but I probably won't. Now, so how does this reconcile with Hebrews 3, where it appears they are in danger of losing their inheritance, eternal inheritance? How then are they sealed and guaranteed? If you take Ephesians chapter 1 in context, you have to say, well, that's true too. So how then are they sealed and guaranteed? How then are we sealed and guaranteed for our inheritance? How do we reconcile these? This is a seriously important question. And this is why it's worth a whole Sunday when we're talking about apostasy, is figuring out how God's work in salvation fits in with this. Let me say this, first of all. Both passages are true. While one verse does not reveal the truth completely, you can gather many passages and, and find yourself that you are standing more Truly, the more passages you gathered, the more robust you're reading on where you're standing. So you don't say, okay, well, this passage over here looks like it stands in opposition to this passage, so I need to pick which one I like. That's what we could be guilty of doing. This Ephesians 1 is kind of hard, so I think I'll lean toward this other one. Both passages are completely true. We are sealed with a guarantee of our inheritance but some may potentially lose out on their eternal inheritance. One passage does not trump or negate the other. They have to be synthesized. They have to be reconciled to figure out how they fit together. Let me just give you a general sense. We're going to spend the rest of the morning figuring out how that works. But let me just give you a general sense of how this works. His elect, I tell you, that's the word I'm going to use. Like it or not, that's... that's if you like the Greek better, it is eglektos. His elect, those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit, with, a, with an inheritance guaranteed, and the visible church. 
are not the same group. I want you to hear that. Those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed of an inheritance are not the same group as the visible church. Those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit and guaranteed our inheritance, his elect, are a subset of the visible church. That's the way it works. They're not two different groups. His elect, those who are sealed, this Ephesians 1 sort of passage is talking about those people, are a subset of the visible church. His elect, will uh, they are a subset of the visible church, and some will do great things for Jesus. And yet hear the words, I never knew you depart from me. Just look at it. Matthew 7. This is one worth turning to. They're all worth turning to, but I want to save your energy. Matthew 7. If you read your Bible much and you've read this passage, I hope it at least gave you pause. Some of you may have spent sleepless nights over this passage. It is a troubling passage. I remember when I was a kid hearing this passage and thinking, man, what in the world does this mean? Who are these people? Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 22 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, hear it, many. Man, let that word hit you for a minute. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Okay, you got to know those are, those are church people. They're not not church people. Just go ahead and accept that and say, okay, we know we're not talking about folks that don't have anything to do with God because they're not going to be sitting around prophesying in Jesus' name. We're talking about church folk. We're talking about visible church folk here. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Man, some folks, in fact, if we're going to trust this passage, many, many will do great works for Jesus but they will hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me. Some too will receive the word with joy, Matthew 13. They'll receive the seed of the word with joy, like man, that is good medicine, but will not survive to bear fruit because of the cares of the world or the deceitfulness of riches or persecution on account of the word will choke that, that word out and never bears fruit. Man, those are difficult passages. But here's what you need to realize. Not all Israelites are sons of Abraham. Turn to Romans chapter 9. I want you to, this is a passage I want you to see. Romans chapter 9. Not all Israelites are sons of Abraham. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. The church at Rome is just, man, they are bogged down. Why in the world did not God's people all see Christ as, as the Son of God and follow him and trust him and become believers? And they're confused over the whole thing. 
So Paul is explaining why not all of Israel saw Christ as the Messiah. Not why, why not all of the living Israelites at that time. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, beginning in verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I wish I myself could have lost out on my salvation and be cut off from you so that all my kinsmen, the other Israelites, could see you for who you are. Because they're Israelites, and to them belongs adoption. Watch the list that the, that the Israelites have. They have adoption. He adopted them as a people. It's not a, just a New Testament thing. He adopted the nation of Israel, and not because they were many in number, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Not because they were fancy, not because they were the brightest or the best, most likely to succeed. They were the foolish things that confound the wise. They were the least likely to succeed and proved it or and or. But to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Even Jesus was an Israelite. Man, the Israelites had everything going for them. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Listen, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Here foreknown, here predestined, here adopted, adopted before the ages were even begun through eternal decree. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and barren old woman Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. There it is again. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What I want you guys to see is not all of Israel are sons of Abraham. Though they have these massive list of things, they have adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, worship, promises. They have the patriarchs. Christ even came from their own lineage. Though they have all those things, not all of Israel are sons of Abraham. Man. What we see as a potential in the Hebrews church, what I've observed in my 10 years here, what we can see in our context, if you're just looking around, is potentially this very same thing. Not all of Israel are sons of Abraham. For the Israel that's not sons of Abraham bailed on Yahweh. They bailed, proving that they were not his. Man, this should not be a fresh and new story for us. It's a story that's been told cover to cover already. And it's not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6. But it's in order that God's purpose of election might continue, verse 11. 
The very thing that may be so unsavory to our Western minds is the very thing that's at the heart of the gospel and the very thing that makes sense of apostasy. In fact, if we didn't see people fall away from the church, we might wonder if the Bible was even true. Is it even true? Can you see that possibly people falling away from the church would just be a fulfillment of what the Scriptures say? So what do we do with the warnings of Hebrews? Are they just talk? If those who are his are sealed by eternal decree and they're not going to fall away, never to be snatched out of his hand, John 10 says. Impossibility to become unsealed. And yet those who aren't his by eternal decree, those Israelites that are not sons of Abraham are going to fall away. Why the warnings? If his elect are sealed and those who aren't will fall away, why bother with the warnings? Well, here's the cool thing about the warnings. The warnings will quicken some and there'll be grounds for judgment in others. The warnings will quicken and stir some. Some will be like, Oh, I don't want to bail on Jesus. Let me go back and cling to him yet again. And then others will be like, I'm out. Grounds for judgment. You realize God is glorified in grace just as much as he is in judgment? You realize God is glorified in judgment? Well, that's what the warnings do. They quicken some and they invite judgment in others. Go back to Hebrews 3. Let me show you something. Crazy to see it in both settings, or both in one setting. Crazy to see this. I'm going to show you a few passages that just, to me, are just reading with a new set of eyes just makes total sense. Man. Hebrews 3, 9. Your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works. Now he's pointing back to the major things that God did for Israel. Delivered them out of Egypt, the plagues, mighty acts of judgment, the Red Sea, Sinai quaking, God speaking from heaven, everybody having to change their depends. God did some amazing things here. They saw my works. It was definitely a time of salvation, definitely a time of deliverance. Now look at verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now here's what I want you to see in this one setting. The Hebrew, Hebrews preacher is talking about one event, the Exodus. And in this one event, there is both salvation and Judgment. Throughout our Bibles, they're usually leaning one direction or another. Whenever the Exodus is discussed, either it's a time of salvation and a time of deliverance, or it's talked about as a time of judgment and a time of perdition. And right here in this context, you see them both. Some passages talk about the 40 years as a time of provision and some as a time of punishment, but both are here in this section because it was a time, the Exodus, a time of salvation and a time of judgment. Here's where I'm going. Turn to Proverbs 10, 29. 
I'm not going to take you to every single one of these passages, but a few of these I do want you to see. Proverbs 10.29. Who knew Proverbs would be a place where you start to see some of this stuff come in focus? Proverbs seems like it's just sort of this gathering of wisdom literature. But listen to this passage from Proverbs 10.29. You're going to see what I'm talking about. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless. Okay, just envision one way. One way. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to others. A good way to visualize that is in the Exodus. The little dry path through the Red Sea is a path of deliverance for some, and it's a path of judgment for others. Wet, deep, torrential judgment in the same path. The very same warnings that the Hebrews preacher is extending to the church that we've been considering together as a church can be a way of quickening some and a way of judgment for others. Quickening in those who hear it and say, yes, I need Jesus, and judgment for those who say, nah, it's rubbish, rubbish. Deliverance and judgment in the same path. John 12, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'm I'm there already. Just listen to this passage. Jesus says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me the commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. One message, Christ's words, judgment for some, deliverance and eternal life for others. It's not two different messages. That's what I want you to see, people. You got to see that this morning. It's not two different messages. It's one message. Christ's words, eternal life and deliverance for some are judgment for others. The warning passages that might seem unsavory because you might see somebody reject it and think, ah, man, we need to get a different message. Is the very message that he will use for life in those who are his. It's the means that he uses Man, life and judgment in the same exact words. In the next chapter, there's the account of the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13. In the very same meal, there's life and judgment. I don't know if you realize this, but Judas took the supper too. And then Judas, being the alpha apostate, steps away from the table with bread in his belly. Apostasy. Man, the supper is a meal of life. 1 Corinthians 11, the whole chapter is about that very thing. The Corinthian church is either eating and drinking judgment on their self or they are eating and drinking life in the very 
same meal. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. There's so much Bible that points toward this. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, As you came to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. One stone, cornerstone for some who are built up into the eternal house, stone of offense for others. One stone, one message, one Christ. Made me think about this Isaiah 55 passage that I can't remember if it was Brad or Scott. I think it was Scott that read this last week. It said, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but, the, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word that goes out will do its work. And it will bring life to some and judgment to others. What I want you to see this morning is this warning of Hebrews chapter 3 that really goes on through the rest of the book. The whole book is really a big warning. This warning warning is a means. In Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to have a whole sermon dedicated to means. Means is so underdeveloped. For me, it has been. What means is pointing to, what means is saying is that God uses things and people and circumstances to carry out his eternal decree. Real people with real words that come out of real, feeble, frail mouths. Standing at real pieces of wood as they sit in real chairs on real Sundays in April. He uses real things to carry out his eternal decree and divine will. He's done it through preaching. I was thinking about this passage this morning. It's right next to the foolishness passage that I read a moment ago. Listen to what's right in front of it. What he says about, what Paul says about preaching. It's in 1 Corinthians Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God to use the folly of a frail, feeble preacher and his frail, feeble, folly words to fulfill his eternal decree declared before the foundation of the earth. That gives me a high view of this. It gives me a high view of preparation each week. 
it makes me swallow hard, realizing that this is an eternal moment every single week when we gather. I'm going to tell you this too. I know there are friends and family here this morning that are for the baptism, here for the baptism, or some who might be visiting for the first time, and you're thinking, man, I showed up on the wrong Sunday talking about election and apostasy. I can trust that maybe you showed up on the right Sunday. Would you be okay if we modified the message for something that sounded good? Could you call it truth if it's something that's modifiable to sound better? In some ways, it's self-validating. It's so repulsive to the natural mind, it couldn't possibly be something that man would make up. He would certainly develop something that would sell better. Seriously, it is self-validating. And it's folly week in, week out. I've been so troubled this week thinking, man, we're going to have visitors there Sunday. We're going to have family members that may, they might, may not even know the Lord. And they're going to hear a message about election and apostasy. But you know what? If you are God's sheep, you're going to hear his voice this morning, even in a message about election and apostasy. And guess who's going to get the glory in that? It's not going to be me. It's not going to be you for bringing them. You're the knucklehead that brought your friends on the Sunday where I'm preaching about election and apostasy. <laughs> Who gets the glory for that? God does. He uses the means of physical things. Oftentimes, usually, the least likely things so that he gets the glory when something awesome happens. So he uses these physical warnings by a physical preacher. He uses physical admonishment to keep those predestined in the faith. They're quickened by it. It works on their hearts. And they go, yeah, I needed that reminder. I was stirred up by way of reminder. My mind is renewed. I needed to remember that Christ is everything. And I'm not going to fall back on some respectable replacement. Man, if his elect won't be snatched out of his hand, period. But yet if some will fall away, 1 John says, they went out from us because they were never really of us. To show that they were never really of us. If all those things are true, why bother with the warnings? For that matter, why bother with preaching? Because it is the means to save and it's the means to keep. It's the means to save, the means to keep, the means to persevere, along with this thing that we can do with each other while it's called today, exhortation. <laughs> Vaccine and medicine against hard, unbelieving hearts. But it's grounds for judgment in those who don't hear it and heed it. God's glorified in both. You got to know that a just God is glorified in judgment. And he's glorified too in having grounds to judge. Man, he's glorified in all of it. So the key there, I think, is don't change the message. Don't change the message because it might be unsavory. Man, what a temptation to change the message this week with knowing that we've got friends and family here that are going to be here maybe for the first time in years or maybe the first time ever and thinking, man, could we just kind of sing a little bit and go home? Baptism, sing and go home? No, we can trust it. We can trust it. 
2 Corinthians has good encouragement for this homeboy. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, frail, feeble, goobers, knuckleheads, right? Us who look a lot like Peter. Hey, you want me to build a tent for you, Jesus? Just, I don't mean to interrupt. I mean, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Everywhere we go. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. Nah, rubbish. To the other, the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We don't change the message. We don't soften it. We don't modify it. We set it loose and let it do its great and terrible work of saving and quickening some and inviting judgment on others. I pray for a whole lot more of the former. A lot more. In fact, I pray that all of them, week after week, will be the former. Saving and quickening. But when I see the latter, I can make sense of it. I can make sense of it. It reminds me the word of God has not failed. It's not going to return void. Like rainfall, it's going to accomplish its work. It's going to be a flood for some, and it's going to water other people's crops. Now, I told you we were going to land the plane this morning in John chapter 6. So turn there. This is our preparation for the Lord's Supper as well. John chapter 6 is, I think, I think it's my favorite chapter in the Bible because it's had such a profound impact on my journey personally. And it's had dramatic impact on the life of our church. We're going to adopt that word. John chapter 6, let me give you a little bit of uh, context. And then this, this is going to prepare us for Lord's Supper. So you've made it through 99% of the message. So if you're like, man, whew, that was heavy, you're almost there. Don't stop short of the finish line because this is where it's going to come together. John chapter 6 starts out with him feeding the multitudes. Pretty awesome day, probably a familiar story for many of you, likely all of you. He feeds the multitudes, and in verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He's feeding the multitudes. They're hungry. They're seeing the miracle of it, and they're like, Man, we have got to coronate this guy. He's awesome. He could likely whip Rome. He's better than any possibility we have now. He's the long-awaited Messiah, maybe. Let's make him king right here, right now. Jesus, with perceiving that, withdraws to the mountain by himself. He's not that kind of king. Then he walks on the water, like Evie mentioned. Walks on the water, braves the high seas, high step in the high waves, gets in the boat, and they're on the other side, just like that. Boop. Fast forward, they're on the other side. 
in a stormy night. Crazy story, awesome. It's not amazing that Jesus walked on the, on the water. It's amazing that God got in the boat. Think about it. Awesome story, okay? We lay, in, lay in the context for the rest of this chapter. We got a bunch of fans, a bunch of fans on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They make their way around. They see Jesus who fast-forwarded, walked, high step in the high seas, got in the boat, makes it all the way across. And they show up and they're like, Jesus, Shazam, how in the wide world of sports did you get over here? That is amazing. Look at what they say. Verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. He's not answering their question. He's answering them with what they really need to hear. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your stomachs led you here. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So they're listening, they're listening, and they're trying to process all this. And then they ask him the eternal question, the eternal human question of God. Okay, God, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What hoops do we have to jump through? What hurdles do we have to clear in order to be saved? That's what's all embedded within this question. And Jesus answered them with one of the most wildly unsatisfying responses in our Bible. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. (sighs) I was asking you, tell me what I'm supposed to do that's measurable, that's visible, that's predictable. I need to be able to chart my my progress. Can you sign the front of my Bible or something like that? Can I get some evidence that I'm actually making progress? Because I need it. It scratches an itch right in the middle of my back. And he says, no. This is the work of God to believe on him whom he has sent. And he spends the rest of the chapter at that point with a bunch of fans explaining to them what belief really means. It doesn't go well. I'll put it to you that way. It doesn't go well. He spends some time talking about developing that he is the bread of God. Look at verse 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's developing this picture of him being their nourishment, them having to completely and absolutely depend on him. They can't depend on any hoops, any little little progress reports. They have to completely depend on him like you depend on food every day. Daily dependence. And he says, I'm what you have to depend on. For this is for, for, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Pretty cool, encouraging passage. Everyone who looks and believes will be raised up on the last day. Now, he goes down to verse 44 to start to introduce some things that are even more controversial than you have to depend on me alone. Verse 44 is the passage where we had a redirect as a church. Verse 44 says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw in the original language means drag. No one can come to me unless the Father 
drags him to me. Nobody is going to look on the Son and believe in the Son unless he has been eternally decreed to do so, and the Father drags him to the Son to open the eyes of his heart. Remember, he has the verbs. He's the mover in salvation. That's a hard passage. It's not the only one here, though. Watch where the crowd goes. Let's fast forward back to the bread conversation in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This word that he used, feeds, actually means munches, chews, gnaws. There's like a dependence in there, gnawing and feeding on me. In verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These sort of words are turning the crowd, who had been a bunch of fans, restless and angry. I don't like that language. It's over the top. I'm okay with this faith thing as long as it's sort of contained. (laughs) But munching and feeding and drinking and I mean, total and absolute dependence. I asked you straight up, what was I supposed to do? And you give me this wildly unsatisfying thing, believe on him whom he has sent. And is this what it looks like? Ooh, I don't know. Look what happens in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, this teaching of gnawing on him, of drinking his blood, eating his flesh, that sort of absolute dependence. They know he's not talking about cannibalism. They don't like what he's talking about, though, because it means they can't depend on anything that they've done. And they're furious. And then, of course, there's this other passage, no one comes to me and let the Father who sent me draws him. They've got plenty to be angry about. When Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, ooh, Ah, mm. Sound effects are mine. It's not really in there. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Yikes. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now look at verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's another very difficult passage. I thought I was in the driver's seat. Invictus. Oh, no, wait a minute. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And look what happens in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples, those who had been following him, turned back and no longer walked with him. Apostasy was not a new thing in the Hebrews church. It happened to Christ. And it sure wasn't because he didn't do a good job sharing the message. It wasn't his deliverance. We got to know his preaching had to have been the best preaching that's ever existed before or since. It wasn't about his delivery. It was about the words. The very same words that bring life to some were words that were an affront to others. An aroma of death. That stench to me. 
Invictus. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, here's what I want y'all to think about in this supper in this next few minutes. Where this should leave you with this apostasy picture in Hebrews chapter three, Ephesians chapter one, work of election, Romans chapter nine, God being glorified through the work of, dele- work of election, where you should land with all this. If you're at the point right now, you're like, man, I don't know what I am. Maybe I'm on the bubble. I don't know. Maybe I might be someday. I don't know what to do. There's some things that I relied on before that I depended on before that I, according to this, I can't really depend on those things anymore. I have the date and signature in the front of my Bible, but according to this, I can't do that anymore. I need to trust in something else. Like I trust in food nourishing me every single day. I need to eat and drink Christ every single day. That level of dependence. I have no hoops I can trust in anymore. So what am I to do? Here's what you're to do. Spoken by, to me, the best picture of the church member in our Bibles. In fact, Jesus told this guy, I'm gonna build my church on the likes of you. The guy that denies me three times. Look, the very same guy says, I'm gonna build you a tent. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you wanna go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you're sitting here this morning, you're like, man, I'm wondering. I don't know if I'm his or not. I don't know if I'm his by eternal decree. I can't see that, and I don't know what to do. It kind of scares me. Well, you know what? I'm with you. I don't know what to do either. I can't see his eternal decree. If perseverance is the mark, behind faith of a true saint, I can't see my own perseverance because I haven't lived out the rest of my days yet. They asked the old man, hey, old man, lived here all your life? He says, nope, not yet. We can't see perseverance in each other. If you come to me for assurance, I can tell you how things look right now, but I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know if you're gonna bail on Jesus tomorrow or next year or next month or a decade from now. If perseverance is something that looks like that's part of what those by eternal decree do, it's not something we can see. So all we're left with is all that Peter was left with. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm sticking with you. I'm not going to get bogged down on all that stuff anymore. I'm going to do what the Hebrews church should do. Stick with Jesus. And enjoy Jesus. And worship Jesus. And read about Jesus. And pray to Jesus. And walk with those that are Jesus' people. Man, that's enough. That's enough. I can depend on him. I can trust in him. Can you do that right now as we take and eat, as we feed and munch and chew and gnaw? Can you take the supper with me right now in complete dependence on him and his finished work? Can you let even these troubling topics like election and apostasy, can you sort of let them settle and just take and eat and enjoy him right now and then come back next Sunday and take and eat some more and then again and again relentlessly?
Man, let's do that together. Let's stick with Peter. Let's do that as we take the supper now. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful for these warnings in Hebrews. And I'm thankful that they have left us in many ways examining ourselves. Lord, I pray that as we examine ourselves that we can find and consider what we are placing our trust in. And that that place where that trust rests will be refined. That we can pick up and move from sandy spots and put down some piers and a good foundation in good rocky soil. On bedrock. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that just shows us that in one single message that you quicken and you also bring judgment. And we pray for quickening week by week by week. Quickening and salvation. I pray that for folks that gather here each week. I pray that so little of this people, this visible church right here, will be those Israelites that fall away who are not the sons of Abraham. Lord, I pray that you will use the means the folly of preaching, the folly of pastoring, the folly of shepherding in homes as shepherds do their best to lead their families in the faith, the folly of small groups. I pray that you will use those things to keep us away from unbelieving hearts, to keep us quickened, to keep us attentive, responsive, enjoying you and enjoying your son. I'm thankful for the timing of this morning too. I'm thankful that what was shared this morning will tickle no ears. But that those who are yours will hear true words about you and true design even if it's difficult and will trust you and even enjoy you in that. It sets me free. Gives me hope. I trust you with the seed sown this morning. I pray it falls on lots and lots of good soil. Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Christy called me this morning and just she was uh, reading ahead in our little daily reading. 1 Timothy 4 verse 15 says this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Paul's writing to Timothy. Persist in this. Keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a pretty cool promise. Listen to what the note says down in the ESV study Bible. Timothy's perseverance in sound doctrine and practice will save him, i.e., it will lead him to persevere in the faith. They heard, they heard my sermon. They, they were, got my notes. They were reading ahead. This type of ministry will be effective, too, in preserving his hearers as well. That's an encouragement for me. Sound doctrine, persisting in these things, persevering in these things. Man, I'm game for that. I hope y'all took nourishment this morning. I did. I know it might be um, more like vegetables and um, broccoli. That's vegetable, but other vegetables, but you need those. You need them. They're good for you. I promise you. They make the dessert even better. Trust me. They really do. Uh, let me introduce a family from membership, Jerry and Mary Jane. Y'all come on up. You met Jerry this morning. This is Mary Jane with him. Y'all come on up here. 
I've, I've met with Jerry and Mary Jane to talk about membership. We've worked through the membership covenant and they've asked questions and we've talked about it and discussed what it means to be a member of a church, at least as far as what we understand it means. And they have said that we, we want to make this public commitment to be part of this body and to stand in agreement with us and to covenant with us. So that's what they're doing this morning. Um, we was, it was dependent or waiting on Jerry's baptism because that's part of our understanding of covenant membership is that we agree on the ordinances, supper and baptism as to what they are and how they are to be applied. So uh, that's why they're being presented this morning. And uh, I want to encourage you to get to know this couple. I have so enjoyed them and they both have such remarkable stories. You're not going to leave Jerry um, feeling worse about yourself. God has really has given a, a sweet gift of really encouraging folks, and it's a blessing. And he's encouraged me over the time that I've known him. And it's been cool getting to know Mary Jane. She has a really cool story of God sustaining a young mom through life and raising kids. And um, God is gracious and good to bring this family to be part of our church family. So y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you. After I dismiss you, please come up and meet them. Y'all stay right here. Come up and meet them. And... Um, Swap phone numbers or whatever. Make a point to get to know them. And over a meal or something, uh, go out of your way to do it. You'll be glad that you did. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for our time together this morning. Thankful that we had the chance to enjoy sound doctrine. And may we persist in it by your grace and your mercy, Lord. We pray that we will persevere to the end. We pray that you'll be glorified in that work as you are the mover behind the verbs. We're thankful for all that we've considered this morning. We're thankful for the sweet, sweet witness that we've had of testimony and baptism. And too, Lord, we're thankful for this family, Jerry and Mary Jane, coming for membership. Pray that they will be equipped well, loved well. Pray that you will use them for exhortation in each other's lives and in our lives. And pray that you'll be glorified through the time that we spend walking together. We love you, Lord. We turn the rest of this day over to you as an offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.